Hello, and welcome to the Games About Glory. I'm your host, Milo, and joining me tonight are Gareth and Ram. Hi, gents. Hi, Milo. Hey, Milo. We're recording on Father's Day. I hope you've both been suitably pampered today. Yeah, I got got a couple of chocolate bars in bed this morning. I didn't eat them in bed. They went back in the fridge and they stayed there for most of the morning. But yeah, I I was impressed. Most of the morning. (laughs) Most of the morning, yeah. I got ice cream, which was nice. Went for a little walk. I was working in the morning, but yeah, it was nice. Nice and chilled. Good stuff. I got some some olives, some peppers and some hot sauce. (laughs) Like Christmas. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And jumped on. I got jumped on. <laughs> I mean, that's not specific to Father's Day, though, is it? Anyone who's got a, yeah. well, a five-year-old knows that that happens pretty much every day. <laughs> so, so in terms of this week's pod, we were going to talk about owners. So Manchester United are due to be bought out by, by the Qatari royal family, or imminently. Um, but we've also got loads and loads and loads of things happening with the club this week. So the week that was is is quite long. We are going to talk about owners, but it's going to be at the end of the pod now rather than the beginning. And depending on how long we talk about everything else that's happened this week, it might be shorter or longer. So when you get to the end of this pod, if we've been talking about owners for more than 10 minutes, we're very pleased with ourselves for rattling through the week that was uh, quickly. If you get there and it's about a two-minute discussion, then you'll know that we've spent too long talking about (laughs) Decky signing a new contract or Sonny's injury or the international roundup or any of the other things that happened at the club this week. In which case, we will move on to the week that was. And first up, we've got the great news that Dejan Kuliseski has signed contract permanent contract with the club he joins us from juventus for 25.6 million pounds on a five-year deal it's great news isn't it it's an excellent deal to get through um i think he's a young player with all the potential in the world you know to be elite level if he can fulfill it and i think we're going to see more of the decky from last season going forwards and that's really exciting yeah I, I think i always took it as a given that he would sign just by the nature of the loan deal it was um it was an obligation to buy i forget that that might not be the semantics but it, it was it, it, it felt like it was it was pretty nailed on that he would sign for us permanently and he was certainly making the right noises wasn't he at the end of the season that he was mm. he was looking forward to staying on so yeah he, look he's a, he's a young player what we need to know though is what, what you know what decky are we going to have are we going to have the decky who we saw at the back end of the 21 22 season who looked like a world beater or play last season for for much of it for for various reasons was a bit of a shadow of that player but um you know hopefully under a new start now and a new manager we'll start to see the best of him again yeah it was an obligation if we qualified for the champions league it was an option if we didn't but my understanding is that with the new kit that was launched last week one of the five names that the club had made available for you um, to put on the shirt from you know, when you're booking was was Decky, so you're not going to be doing that if he wasn't going to stay around. I, I mean, I think it's quite interesting that you know there was quite a lot of criticism when there was talk about us negotiating with Juventus about this because there was a fee agreed in in the loan agreement, but we've managed to knock I think it's four point three million pounds off off the deal, and the repayments are over six years now, so it's you know it, it amounts to hmm. well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's five, yeah. Like six million, no, no, four million a year, is it? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, next to nothing. So, not, not even the revenue for a Beyonce concert. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, well, no, you sent over a six year deal. It just made it. Is, is, we're not calling this Bowley Ball, though. Negotiate <laughs> about 27 years. And... His contract's five years, but we're re- the repayments are over six. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's got to be it's got to be yeah. clever. And there there were a few very mischievous reports in the in the press, which I'm sure mm. put it down to slow news day that perhaps that us trying to renegotiate the deal was going to allow someone else to yeah. to come in and, and steal him off us, but that wasn't that I, wasn't to be. And I think, as yeah. you said, the fact that his name was on the on the on the back of the shirts when they were released last week was yeah. everyone was pretty confident it was going to be done. Well, presumably there was a window when we could activate activate the option anyway. So you've probably got a fallback. If if it looks like Newcastle are going to come in and mm. steal him off you, and I think they were one of the clubs that were meant to be interested, then yeah. you've got a fallback. So anyway, it doesn't matter. We've got him. We've got him, and I think I think you know with with the criticism and stuff like that, I think that's unfortunately a rod in the back that um, our our Daniel unfortunately has to bear just because of the you know the, the, the occasions where it might not have worked. You know when we've tried to renegotiate things or, or we've tried to negotiate you know in a tough manner, but. You know, I think it was all a, it, like like um, Gareth said. It's all a bit silly. So, you know, slow news day, and and you know, and this is this is what we are actually really good at, which is kind of trying to get um, best value for uh, our business. I think the other thing is that there's a section of our fan base who are going to complain whatever we do, and exactly. you know, it's just you know anything to try and kind of beat the club with. And <laughs> yeah, realistically, if we've you know shaved you know four you know four and a half million off this deal, we shave ten million or whatever off what Brentford want for Raya, then potentially that's another player. Yeah. And in a in a tight summer where we've got to get a lot of business done, it makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We can press on now knowing that he's an active member of the squad and will be hopefully for a, for a good few years to come. Great. Um let's talk about Sonny. Um it has been revealed that he had a hernia operation after our season ended. Sonny is currently on international duty with South Korea and was on the bench for their 1-0 loss to Peru. Prior to that game, Sonny said, following in an interview, I wondered a lot if I should even make this public, but I struggled with pain all season. I played through it for eight to nine months, but couldn't go on anymore. So I made the decision finally and underwent surgery. Even for simple actions like passing or turning, every move—excuse me, every movement—starts from your core muscles. But that's exactly where my pain was. I was only able to do sixty percent of what I could do at a hundred percent throughout the season. So, chaps, does this ex- help explain Sonny's comparatively poor season last year? Um, yeah, yes, absolutely, it does, doesn't it? Um, I mean, he's a player. But, uh, perhaps one of the things we've taken for granted with him has been his fitness. I really don't mm. remember him missing many games. Maybe in his first season, he he was plagued by a few injuries but that's going back a few years so one of the best things about him one of his best attributes has been his availability and his and his fitness so mm. again a great saying that you um that you live life forwards but you understand it going backwards and knowing what we know now it mm. matches up almost entirely if you layer that over how his season panned out well yeah of course he had an injury yeah yeah i mean i think you could understand Sonny not wanting to have the surgery before the world cup um and you know, I mean, obviously, captaining his country—it's you know—it's it's an opportunity that might not come around for him again. Although, obviously, you'd hope it would. Um, in terms of his form, yeah, I, th- I think it does explain it. I mean, Conte changed the role he played last season. His golden boot season, he was leading the line, and Kane was dropping deeper into the pockets, which we saw some do towards the end of the season. Um, but he spent most of the season kind of deep in midfield with his back to goal, getting kneed in the back by burly midfielders. And I think I, I do wonder. Kind of how much, I mean, obviously it's not his game, but I also wonder, you know, how much that would have an impact because I, th- I would imagine that a hernia operation is going to impact on your kind of core strength. And, you know, he talks there about, um, you know, his mobility. Um, I, I can't, it can't have helped him in that, you know, kind of that really difficult 
role he was being asked to play. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, I'd agree with both of you there. And I think that, like, you know, having him in a system where he essentially has to start attacks from the left-back position didn't help things either. Um, it does explain some of perhaps his inconsistent finishing mm. as well throughout the season. You know, there was there was plenty of chances he had where you would normally have expected to bury them. And, um, you know, and it was just, it was very unsonny-like. Um with that, though, could we also point the finger at perhaps Conte's attitude towards injured players? You know, it's even more more puzzling that Richarlison and Dunjuma didn't get more minutes now that we know this. Um, I mean, I would point my finger at Antonio Conte for pretty much everything at the moment. So when my butter got left left out of the fridge the other day and on the side, I, I did point a finger towards Antonio Conte for that. Um, and I think ordinarily I would point my finger out for him Again, it's maybe a bit lazy to say that, well, Conte would expect injured players to play, but from everything you've just said there, which some of which was things I'm hearing for the first time, we don't know how much Conte would have known about Sonny's injury. I mean, maybe it suited Sonny's rather to sort of keep it on the, keep it on the down low. We don't even know how much our medical mm. staff were, were kept in the picture about what sort of pain he was actually feeling. Um, I mean, look, we, we, we could be here all night discussing the lack of squad rotation throughout the season which i think in itself is is probably yeah. a slightly different issue yeah i mean i think yeah. i think with um with conte yeah i mean you know he we, we we know that he kind of rages at the medical team when players aren't available and um would would play players through injury i mean i think even with sunny it was said that he was doing that during the season we've also got to bear in mind that sunny's played a full game with a broken arm before um yeah. so <laughs> um you know he's he he would probably want to play on you know Again, certainly prior to the World Cup, um, yeah. If the club weren't were weren't aware of the injury, though, Gareth, I do. I mean, it would show up in the data. It would show up in the data that you know, both in training and during matches, and that would make it even more puzzling that you know, considering it's a part of the team where we were reasonably well stacked, that yeah. other players didn't get a chance. Yeah, um, it would do. Yeah, I think just the how good he's been over those last few years that I think, you know, even us watching us, you know, the, the eye test was telling us there's something not quite right with him, but equally we're all thinking, well, let's just, yeah, maybe if he plays next week, he'll, he'll, he'll come good and he'll score again. Yeah. And, um, that, yeah, and that's, that's a debate we had a lot early in the season, wasn't it? Where we were saying, yeah. you know, do we play him through a bad form as we were thinking it was then, or should Richardson get a, a run of games and Sun can come in and, um, yeah, hopefully recover form. And, you know, with that, that Leicester game, I think we all thought that's what was happening there and that might be a pattern yeah. we saw. But, you yeah. know, with this, we kind of know there's a bit more to it. I do think it's puzzling yeah. that he didn't have this surgery after the World Cup. There is a gap there. Uh, after yeah. South Korea got knocked out, you know, he, he had the surgery at the end of the season. He was on the bench for South Korea this weekend, which is two weeks. So yeah. he could have easily had it mid-season and and been available very quickly. Yeah. Although, th- I mean, these injuries and the rehabilitation from them, it is, they are dynamic situations. So what the situation in November may have been, look, he just needs to rest it. And yep. then he's just that continue to aggravate it and use it throughout where now they're at a point where he's actually passed that threshold where surgery is the only solution for it. I, I think that's a fair point. A surgery is always a last resort, isn't it? So yeah. if they if they thought it might recover, then maybe decided against yeah. it. And I think Sun says himself in, in that in those that interview he wasn't sure whether he wanted to have surgery or not, but he said it was you know playing through it was getting too much. 
Yeah. He even says if you at the beginning where he says, I wondered a lot if I should even make this public. So I think there's also an element of, of pride with him as well. And, you mm. know, and, and, uh, and as, you know, as Gareth mentioned that some players, they live in the medical room or some players refuse to go in the medical room. And I'd imagine Sonny is one of the latter. Mm. Uh, and I feel like maybe, you know, maybe, but, you know. <laughs> maybe it's to do with his upbringing. You can imagine what his, yeah, dad, was, his dad might that, yeah, be more that, of the Conte school. Yeah. Than... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, without wanting to kind of like cast any sort of stereotypes or anything, you know, aspersions in that sense. But yeah, I, I, was, I did wonder whether his dad had like some sort of influence mm. over that, you know, and, and um, I, you know, that there's just, there's, there's always going to be some players that just will see it as some a form of weakness if they if they come out and say, "Well, I'm injured, that's why I'm not playing well." Um, you know, yeah. and I feel like Sonny would just he has too, there's too much pride in him to say that. But I guess what we can say is, you know, uh, let's all hope for the Sonny of the season prior, a uh, Sonny who's at the top of the goal scoring charts and uh, and uh, really get, really kind of galvanizing us in, in each game. Both Sonny and. Decky, you know, we've just been talking about. I think Angie's a really positive, you know, appointment for them, yeah. and you know, they've both had a few years where um, they've had you know, kind of less attack-minded coaches to work with, and ho- you know, hopefully, hopefully, this change of direction will suit them. You're both. saying the handbrake's coming off, right? <laughs> <laughs> We, we, you know, we're going we're gonna to lay into him later, aren't we? So let's let's, let's, let's <laughs> references out. But yeah, look, <laughs> let, let's hope in what five to six weeks' time that Sonny will be doing eighty lengths of a pitch in ninety eight percent humidity as part of a cool down, and will be caught on social media yakking up everywhere. And of course, that will be every indication that he's, he's perfectly fit and ready to start the season flying again. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to move on now to the international roundup. And um, quite a few bits to give you here. So first of all, Rio Kiermaichen played 30 minutes for England's under-18s in the 0-0 draw with Portugal. Um, Ivan Perisic played in the Croatia side that beat the Netherlands 4-2 to reach the Nations League final against Spain, which is being played as we recalled. And... Um, You'll have noticed that Steph isn't on the podcast this week, and that is undoubtedly because he is watching this game and was so glued to it um, that he couldn't join us on the podcast tonight. I believe. Can we have a score update? Still nil nil, nil nil, nil nil in the first period of uh, added time or extra time. And yeah. um, we we were saying as well that he's been playing left back, hasn't he? He has in yeah, a back played, four. Yeah, yes. Um, yeah, he did against the Netherlands as well. Um, uh, you know, earlier in the weekend. So, yeah, I don't know whether Big Ange is watching this and uh, wondering whether this is one of the spots filled. Um, <laughs> could well, could, I, I could well be. I hope not. <laughs> no, it doesn't feel like a solution, does it? Um, Christian Romero and Giovanni Lo Celso both played for Argentina in their win over Australia, which is sounds like a great way to impress their new Australian boss, Big Ange, so well done to the pair of them. Um, ben Davis and Joe Roden played for Wales in a 2-4 defeat to Armenia. Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, we may well hear his name mentioned again before the end of the pod. Uh, he played for Denmark in a 1-0 victory over Northern Ireland. By the way, did you see the Denmark kits? No, I didn't know. No, they've gone retro. They've gone back to the old ret- the Hummel 86 kit. So it's like half and oh, half wow. with the one half where it's very thin red and white stripes. It looks fantastic. You're just you approve, expecting, yeah? Um, I, I, I approve. Yeah, I'm hoping if the, if the camera 
panned out, you'd have seen the Loudrup brothers and Jan Mulby and Jesper Elson as well. Um, Troy Parrott came on in the 89th minute as the Republic of Ireland lost to Greece. Uh, Davidson Sanchez played 90 minutes for Colombia as they beat Iraq 1-0. Uh, Richarlison led the line for Brazil as they beat Guinea 4-1. I'm assuming he didn't score? He didn't score, no. He came came off in, I think, the 80th minute. Right, okay. And uh, finally, another week and another record for Harry Kane. This was the sole international game that I've watched in the last um, week or so. But his goal against Malta on Friday means that he's become the first ever England player to score 50 competitive international goals. And uh, his third goal was part of a 4-0 victory, which is a very comprehensive one in Valletta. Uh, He will presumably play again tomorrow night when England hosts North Macedonia at Wembley in the UEFA European Championship qualifiers. Firstly, props to Harry, but I just wanted to pick up on one of the other results. Am I being unfair to Armenia by saying beating Wales 4-2 is a bit of a shock? Uh, Well, I'm not sure where Armenia sit, but I know Wales have aspirations of being a regular qualifier for major competitions i hadn't really i think i'd seen the result but i hadn't really registered it's that that kind of stood out to me a bit as like oh that that seems like a a bit like a shot defeat considering yeah wales Mm. is you know sort of record in the last sort of few tournaments and this is obviously post um post bail wales as well yeah Uh, should we move on to the premier league fixtures On Thursday, the fixture list for the new season was announced. We'll kick off the campaign away to Brentford. Our first home game is the following week against Manchester United. Um, What do you think, guys? Are there any fixtures or any runs of fixtures that caught your attention? I think I always obviously look for the first Arsenal fixture. which is Nice and early in the season, but it's at their place. It's at their place. So will Big Ange be able to break the away hoodoo there in the league? Um, And then obviously... 4th November, first Chelsea fixture and potentially Poch's return. And I say potentially just because it's Chelsea and Fat Frank could be back by then. Um, they've, got a, <laughs> they've, they've got an absolutely stinking run from late October through to early December where they play oh, pretty wow. much all of the kind of big six clubs. And I think their respite in between those, I think, are Brentford and Brighton. So they've got a really, wow. really a horror run. And then our game is in the middle of that. So, yeah, we've got the prospect of getting Poch sacked on bonfire night on Guy Fawkes <laughs> night, which is um, obviously a time where traitors get their comeuppance. So, um, <laughs> um, sorry, I just, I would, uh, just one other thing was the first half of um, December, I think, is very tricky as well um, with a lot of matches too. We've got City away on the second, West Ham at home three days later, you know, and they obviously t- always turn up for us. Newcastle at home on the ninth, then Forest away on the 16th. And then actually after a visit from Everton, we've got a trip to Brighton on Boxing Day. Gareth, you've probably already worked this out. Some of those games, I think, follow champion, key Champions League games, don't they? European games. So the, the Yeah, the only one that's really going to have any impact on us is the one against Arsenal. So that follows a Champions League midweek. So hopefully Ugh. they'll have got stuffed in by Munich 5-2 or, or something like that. And this will be a Saturday lunchtime, which actually on this occasion will work in our, well, potentially work in our favour. As we know, we always we always fold at Emirates no matter what the circumstances. Yeah. But um, that, that could work out for us. There were, and I also look, yeah, there were, there were no clashes where we play any of the Thursday night teams. So Brighton, Villa, West Ham or Liverpool. We don't play them immediately after they would have played any midweek games. So we're largely, we're, we're in control of our own destiny. 
where we've got these free midweeks essentially. Um, the th- I mean, this is this is slightly a stage of life thing. So many years ago, I was always desperate to see that we were at home on on Boxing Day. Now it's a bit of a relief because I haven't got to think about trying to put off the in laws and trying to trying to rearrange <laughs> things for that. So the fact we're away at away at Brighton suits me. Um, fifth year in a row that we've been away on the last day of the season. Um, mm. Now there's always a bit of a, the tradition. There's always used to be a bit of fuss made about the importance of being at home on the first day of the season. But I actually think being being at home on the away on the last day of the season could really be important. The last two years we've played against teams who have been relegated, so Leeds mm. and, and, and Norwich. Then we had the game at Leicester when we deprived them of um, of Champions League, and we got a draw at Palace in that game that secured us our spot in the Europa League under under Mourinho. So this year we were away at Sheffield United on the final day of the season. Um, I think I'd have preferred a home game on the last day, but who knows how relevant that'll be at, at that point. Yeah, I mean, the really nasty run is the one in, in April, isn't it, where we've got Newcastle, mm. Man City, Arsenal and Liverpool in successive weeks. Um, yeah. That's... I thought I've seen quite a lot of complaining about about the um, about the uh, the fixture list, but I mean, I thought on the whole, apart from that run, I didn't think it was too bad. There aren't too many clusters where you've got lots of unwinnable games, and mm. again, I think you know we're away more than home in the opening few fixtures, but I didn't think there were too many there that were really tough games. No, so the, well, there's a, there's a period. You know, it depends where we're going to be, I, I guess. But towards mm. the end of November, we've got Villa at home. Obviously, finished above us this season. Then we go to Man City. Uh, then we have a midweek game at home to West Ham before playing Newcastle at home. So that's three out of four teams that finished above us last year, and another team who were playing in a cup final against us. So that's quite <laughs> a tough run. Um, there's also, I mean, you, you mentioned that run of four games in April. I should say that that Man City game, which is scheduled for the 20th of April, is also the same weekend as the FA Cup semi-finals. So, that, I mean, there's there's a reasonably good shot. There's got to be at least a 50-50 chance that City will be in that FA Cup semi-final, in which case that game may be moved back to later in the season anyway. Hmm. That April running, it looks like we'll be quite heavily involved in deciding sort of top four in title challenges even if we're not in either race well, after we've secured mm. the title we can decide yeah, who, who yeah, else yeah. In, in february like <laughs> arsenal did this season quite right <laughs> quite right i mean I, I'm, I'm sure that um our, our good friend luton will be shouting down the line about those fixtures <laughs> against luton so we we travel to luton on the 7th of october um, I think he is offering his front drive, isn't he? You can park there for, for, for a nominal fee. <laughs> uh, and then Luton comes to, to Tottenham for the first time in over 30 years on the 30th of March. So that wow. that was a standout one just because of the real novelty value of having, mm. of having Luton back in the top flight and, yeah. and best of luck to them. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, on to release players. So on Thursday, the club confirmed that Lucas Moura, Clement Longley and Arnott Dunjamar have left the club. I suspect that Clem may be back before the end of the summer. Uh, development squad players Jamie Bowden, Callum Cisse, Maliki Fagan Walcott, Russian Mathurin. Wow, I feel like Steph. He's <laughs> <laughs> pronounced oh, Marcus. Marcus, Marcus yeah. Muir, and Romain, Romain, Romain Mundell have left following the conclusion of their contracts. Word is that Mundell may be joining Royal Antwerp. And under 18 players Thomas Bloxham. Brandon, Brian, War, and Riley Owen have also departed following the conclusion of their scholarships. How do you feel about these departures? Um, it's, it's, it's such a small percentage of, of under-18 players actually go on to make any sort of impact in the professional game, let alone at, at you know, Spurs level. 
So of those, what, seven or eight names that you've mentioned, I suspect one of them at some point may have a decent run in the Premier League or one you think, mm. well, why did we release them? And probably the other five or six, God bless them, you'll never hear anything about them ever again. Mm. Um, so, it's so yeah, it's difficult. When Tom blocks them, there was a goal that he scored, maybe for the under-18s or under-16s a couple of years ago that, um, that was, I think, was like trending on social media. He scored an absolutely unbelievable goal. But... Um, you've got to trust that our people that make the decisions on that make decisions based on wider issues than whether they scored a one and goal as a 15 year old a few years ago and that they sadly convinced that they're not going to make it. I mean, we're going to talk about the ones that have been given new contracts and sadly the reality for them is is pretty similar, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think there's a few there who probably do quite well in the football league. Um, and, but, you know, we needed to clear out the under 21s in order to create space for our under 18s and under 17s who are just a really, you know, far better, better intake. And the one that people are upset about is Romain Mundell. Um, he has had a really good season for the under 21s and really stepped up a level. I, I, he's not a player who kind of hugely caught my eye before this season. Um, but I'm not, conv- I'm not convinced that, um, he would have made the step up to our first team. And I think, you know, if, ideally, I suppose you have him, you know, we did offer him a contract. Ideally, you get him to sign that contract, you loan him out and you see whether he continues to improve and whether he can make that step up. But, um, yeah, I don't think, I don't think it, it's not like some of the players we've left in the past who are clearly very good and, and could have, uh, been useful, mm. you know, first team squad members. I don't think, I don't think he's, he's that. Um, yeah, and say, so, Ram, you kindly read out my words about um, Clement Longlake <laughs> coming yeah. back. As, uh, I, was, I, I was like, do I think that? <laughs> <laughs> I I suspect that he will be brought back as a squad player because mm. the the fees being talked about for for him are very very low. And you know, whilst he's not the quickest, um, I think he ticks most of the other boxes from what Angie's going to want from a defender. Although I did spend some time this week looking at, looking at data on players' speeds, you know, mainly around him. And uh, UEFA have got a load of data on that on their website um, from Champions League. And he's quicker than quite a few of our other defenders, or at least based on their data, although I'm not sure that passes the eye test. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, about, um, I, I suspect he'll yeah, come sorry. back. I suspect he'll come back as as second yeah. choice left centre back. I agree, and I, I, th- I think it's almost a no brainer when you think of the fees like being discussed uh, for him. Um, with Danjima, do you think it's a shame he never really got an opportunity, or do you think it was the right decision um, for him to be, re- you know, for, for us not to take up an option on him? I, it was a shame we didn't see more more of him, and therefore I've got no real opinion of him. He scored a couple of goals mm. for us. I always felt when we signed him this sort of smacks as a sort of a Gedson Fernandez style mm. loan signing where it's just to pad out the squad a little bit in areas where we potentially may have been short. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I've liked him previously. We didn't really see enough of him in our shirt to make a judgment. I think the um, the the fees that have been talked about to make it permanent were quite high. So when he, when he signed, so um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame that we didn't see more of him and, and he didn't get a mm. chance to show whether he, whether he was worth having or not but I think I've also heard some accounts saying that he wasn't in the best shape when he joined um and there was there were certainly photos of him training at the at the training ground very very late doing um Mm. you know in the gym so yeah it's a shame he seemed he seemed he seemed really you know good in terms of you know the interviews I saw with him and the media work he did and he fronted up quite a lot of the um club's activities while he was here um yeah it's a shame 
Yeah, okay. Right, I'm going to give you an opinion on Longley, and that's going to segue into my next section, actually. Um, so, I mean, my opinion is I'd be disappointed if we ended up signing Clement Longley. Um, I thought in there, there was we saw a player who was fairly bang average, what we had. Um, I think he's a player that was always going to be better in a back three than he will be in a back four, and that's slightly been his downfall at Barcelona. Um, I, I suspect he might be the sort of player that we'd sign him on the 29th of August if sort of plan A, B and C don't quite work out. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm quite hopeful that plan, at least plan B or C will be our highly promising 18-year-old centre-back Alfie Dorrington, who has signed a new contract keeping him at the club until 2026. Um, so Alfie Dorrington is a left-footed central defender who um, really shone in that Premier League Cup game against Aston Villa, which mm. we saw clips of him carrying the ball out from the back. He's got a good passing range on him as well. Um, he's got very good physical maturation for an 18-year-old. He, he looked well, literally head and shoulders above most of the players that he was playing against. And he's one of the players that I personally would, would, would really hope to see um, in and around the first team this season. Um, other players that have signed contracts this year include 17-year-old centre-back Archie Chaplin, who signed his professional contract with the club. Um, and there are strong rumours that there will be an announcement imminently about Mikey Moore committing his future to the club. Uh, that's due any day now, and he would sign a scholarship contract. And the reason we would all be very excited about Mikey Moore is, A, because he's so, so young. I think he's still a 15-year-old. He may just be 16. Um, but he featured very prominently in the I can't remember if it's the 17s or 18s but the game at the city ground 18s uh, Forest it was the 18s so he's playing for you know, three years above his age range he scored from a fantastic goal from a Maisie dribble and people are very very excited about Mikey Moore and hopefully this would be a really good a really good sign that players or highly talented players in the academy are now seeing that there could potentially be a pathway for them into the first team. So I think those three players that we've mentioned there, say particularly Dorrington and Mikey Moore, mm. is a really positive sign. And I'm presuming that the pair of you all equally think that that's a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mikey Moore's 16 on the 11th of August. So I assume that he couldn't sign scholarship forms until yeah. he turned 16. So there might be an announcement this is due, but he couldn't actually put pen to paper until then. Um, mm-hmm. I know that there were quite a few... European clubs that were after him. So if we managed to tie him down to a a new contract or to a contract, that's really, really good news. And, you know, as you said, there were rumours that he wasn't sure about the pathway into the first team, which was why he was, you know, why why his future was uncertain. It's worth saying also that on his social media, he's posted loads of photos of himself in a Spurs shirt over the last few, uh, over the last week or so. So he, he certainly... Um, seems to be pretty positive about the club. So that's, that's really, really good news. And I, I agree with you on Dorrington. I think, um, I, and I agree with what you're saying on Longley. I, I, I just think it's probably going to be a business decision as much as anything and that he's cheap and we mm. could flip him in a year's time. On Dorrington, yeah. I think he, he's great. I'd, I'd love watching him this season. I'd, I'd, I'd chuck in Charlie Sayers as another one in the academy who could, who I think would be useful in the um, first team squad and is also a left centre back. Um, Although I do have, picked, I do have in my head, I've got uh, an image of Alfie Dorrington doing that. Say the the run he did upfield for the for the goal mm. in in the Under 18s Cup final, and um, and Romero alongside him 
also being miles upfield and uh, yeah. <laughs> there's so many acres of space behind them. <laughs> they might not be a natural pairing, those two. Quite, quite well, I was going to ask whether, you know, we haven't really been linked to many centre-backs, so could they be the answer? Will they be starting in West London in August? But clearly not. If Romero's I, not going to be, <laughs> if it's not going to go a good fit with Romero. I, I, I think Dorrington probably needs a year in the under-21s yeah. with maybe some cup appearances and then alone. Eighteen would be very, very young to be playing as yeah. a premier as a centre back in the Premier League. Yeah, against a wily front for I w- I was trying to do some research, knowing we were talking about this. I was trying to go back through archives and see if I could see any reference to the statement that the club would have probably put on their website in July 2010 when a young 18-year-old forward Harry Kane signed a professional contract with the club that would keep him here till 2014. And I mean, every year there'll be probably half a dozen players of that sort of age range who mm. sign professional contracts. And again, a man in the street really doesn't know much about them, does he? And you know, occasionally one of them is, is going to go on and make a real impact in the in the first team. Yeah, he does. Few and far between. He does look really good, though, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, incredible skill set. You just got to hope his luck. I mean, in, luck plays such a big part in it here. I think specifically around injuries, specifically around just being given those opportunities to get first team football, whether that's with us or, or whether you, you sort of get lucky with a good loan move. I think at the very least we can hope that if they get the chance to train with the first team squad, they're doing more than just acting as cones this season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, while we're talking about the academy, the club announced on Tuesday that Dean Rastrick has decided to step away from his role as academy manager. And there's rumours that he's going to be joining up with the with the FA. And I think there were rumours of that earlier in the season. So this isn't entirely unexpected, but we wish Dean well. And going out with that under-17 and under-18 Premier League Cup wins is a is a good way to bow out. So thanks, Dean, and good luck with whatever you're doing next. And now we'll just move on to the transfer rumours. So Alistair Gold has said that we've asked Bristol City to keep us informed of the situation with Alex Scott. Um, and he also says that Napoli and Fenerbahce have shown interest in Tanguy and Dembele for next season. Bayern Munich are said to be interested in signing Pierre-Mir Hoibier. And the Colombian press are reporting that Davinson Sanchez has decided to leave the club this summer. They say that there's interest from several Premier League clubs, but he'd prefer to move to a new league. And former Leicester coach Chris Davis is said to be close to joining us as part of Angie's coaching team. He's worked with Brendan Rodgers at Swansea, Liverpool, Celtic and Leicester and is said to have turned down the opportunity to become a Swansea manager in order to join us. And he thought that was difficult with coaches, isn't it, as to whether actually... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's difficult to know what they what they do. I, I was I was, inter- I was reading up a bit a bit about him. I'd say I, I, kind of the Brendan Rodgers thing kind of repulsed me a little bit. But um, I was reading up on him. It, it, it was he thirty eight, so you know, quite young. Um, interestingly, he uses a lot of uh, foot cell ta- tactics or techniques uh, in coaching, which I think is quite interesting. It's something that uh, Deserby is very keen on at Brighton. Um, so maybe he's redeemed himself. And was um, Swansea Brendan Rodgers? We all, we we all didn't mind. Huh. Yeah, good point. <laughs> any any thoughts, Gareth? Or <laughs> I'm, I'm liking Brendan Rodgers. Not really. No. Um, no. Yeah. You, you don't know, do you? You you don't know what everyone knows. Everyone in football. That's a saying that I've I've heard. And whether who knows whether there's been any sort of prior relationship, whether it's via an intermediary between you know him and him and Ange. The dynamic is really, really important. I think we've seen instances where um, certain coaches seem to have been parachuted into managers' thinking. So the ones that come to mind, you, know, you remember when Stefan Freund was mm. dropped into AVB's coaching team? 
Um, and likewise, I think Ledley going in with with Mourinho and even Mason into Conte team, you never really knew um, how much how how much how close they got to the inner circle as someone who was brought into that group. Um, I mean, Ange's track record is, isn't he? He he goes by himself and then he sort of assembles as a coaching team based on mm. what's already at the club and, and where he gets out there. So, I mean, I, I quite like the idea that a manager will put himself outside his comfort zone and would welcome outside voices and influences on there. How that actually pans out or not is a, you know, is a different question, whether you've just got too many opinions on whether there's a clash or not. But um, I'm, I'm sure this is all part of our recruitment team's wider scope yeah. rather than just looking at players. It's to, it's to look at upcoming coaches as well. Yeah, and I suppose with, with Davis, so it's possible that he made an impression at his time at Celtic and Ange had heard about that. But it's also possible mm. that he was on a training course with someone that they both know and or yeah. you know with Ange or something like that and they you know or Mason or whoever else and uh, made an impression you know difficult to know isn't it I, I agree with you about Postacoglu bringing in new people at clubs I think it's it's good that he's uh, you know, open to new ideas in fact he uh, 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 you know absolutely seeks them out and, and wants to be challenged and I think one of the reasons why Ferguson was so successful at United for so long is that he was able to reinvent himself without actually leaving the job by bringing in other coaches yeah right so now it's time to move to our main discussion we've done quite well on time <laughs> so as I said at the top with Manchester United said to be close to being bought by Sheikh Yassim bin Hamad Al Thani who's a member of the Qatari royal family and the brother of PSG's owner we already have Man City owned by the United Arab Emirates and Newcastle owned by Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, Newcastle owners, also own a part of Clearlight Capital, who are Chelsea's owners. Where does this leave Spurs and our more prudent financial model? Can we afford to continue as we are, or is it a case of you can't beat them, join them? Um, and is competition at the top of the English football getting even harder? Is it even possible to compete against kind of these mega wealth that we're seeing from um, you know, state-owned football clubs? What do you think, guys? Can we compete? Is it possible to compete by being smarter or does this not really leave you any room for error? You know, where are we with this? So I, I think it's only possible to compete by being smarter is, mm. is, is my headline of, or my hot take on that one. Um, it's, it's either that or we, we have someone of that same ilk and wealth come and take over us. That's my that's my opening that's my opening thoughts. But I'm interested to hear what Ram's got to say, and then I'm going to give you all a history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think if we're comp- if we're talking about competing to win the league, then no, at the moment we can't compete. I think we're like you know the we're like the sprinter that starts in lane seven or eight of the um, Olympic hundred meters final. We you know we're glad to be there. And and uh, unless something really truly uh, majestic happens, like the Leicester season, where uh, you know we we where we were almost perfect, so we have every bit of luck go our way, and the handful of teams that would normally be competing for the title have a shit season, um, and so on and so forth. So I, I think we can't compete. You know, we, I don't. I, I actually disagree. I don't think just being smart now in the current climate of football is is good enough for us. You know, we have to have all bases covered. Um, so that's my hot take. Yeah, I mean, I'd say if you take Chelsea period under Abramovich, I mean, I would argue that was effectively state ownership anyway, in that Abramovich yeah. was a Putin patron who, um, you know, was only holding his money because of because of that patronage. And in, in so in that in that instance of the Premier League over the last 10 years, eight out of 10 have been won by state controlled clubs So Chelsea winning two, Man City winning six. 
and you've got Liverpool winning one and Leicester winning one. Um, so I don't think it's even that this is particularly new. I think overall this period, um, you know, that's been the case. It kind of made me laugh when people were talking about Antropostokoglu in, in, in Scotland saying it's a it's a two-league team. And you're thinking, well, actually, as is a one-league team because City have won, what, <laughs> yeah. three on the bounce mm. now? and Five of the last um, six. Yeah, five of the last yeah. six, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think specific to Man United, you, you're talking about we, we won't be able to compete with them. Right? We can't compete with them at the moment. You think this season yeah. we were mm. in the Champions League and they weren't, but they bought, um, they bought Anthony and they bought Casemiro. Um, well, a few years before that, we were in the Champions League and they weren't. They bought Harry Maguire for eighty million pounds. Now, whether we wanted these players or not is, is neither here nor there. We wouldn't if we'd gone up with Manchester. If we'd really wanted them, we would have got nowhere near mm. a the amount they were able prepared to put down on the table in the transfer fee and in wages as well. Wages, and, yeah. I, and I think the other thing is though that is that they can afford to make mistakes. So, of those signings you're talking about last summer. How many actually were you know, really good this mm. this season? And you know the same with City. You know they can sign a player for big money, and we can afford to have them sitting in the reserves or as a fringe player for yeah. a year, two years, well, what have you, until they until they come good. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Whereas we've got a player. You know they come in. They've got to make an impact if we're signing big. You know signing them for big money. We we can't spend money and then wait for someone to develop. That's what I mean. It has to be an exceptional set of circumstances. And like these teams, I mean, you've got what I would consider legacy teams in inverted mm-hmm. commas, like like United, Liverpool and Arsenal, who will always be at that top table, you know, regardless of where they finish in the league and stuff, they'll always bounce back or they'll come back at some point because of their legacy. Um, but then, the, you know, the, the, the these newer clubs with, with kind of new money as alongside those legacy teams, they're able to move the goalposts every time we look like we might be getting in and dining at that top table. And actually, just, just going back, I know we like um, uh, we shouldn't look back all the time at this, but what Poch actually achieved with the, our financial clout at the time is not, is I consider it a, almost a miracle. Um, you know, it, but even now, with with when you think about the you know the the entertainment that we're having at the stadium outside of football, the NFL match day and stadium TV revenue, and you take all of that into consideration, mm. the big money clubs can always go one better. And we yeah. can't compete with that, and nor should we, because that's not a that's not a healthy yeah. business model. Right. So you'll, you'll find there'll be an arms race between United, City, you know, Newcastle, Newcastle, you know Chelsea, yeah. uh, and, that, and that's the way it goes. So I, I, I promise you all a, a history lesson. So just to go back in time, and really, look, my, my point here is going to be what we're seeing at the moment is no different in concept. Uh, what we've seen any point in the past. I mean, there will be people listening to this at the moment, or there will be fans of other clubs who may not be listening to this, who would point out, well, look, you won the double in 1961 because you were prepared to spend more money than anyone else. And it was, it was just after we won the double, but we broke the transfer record in Britain by signing Jimmy Greaves for £99,999. But in the, in the, in the 90s, which is, as you know, is always my reference point here, I mean, just to take you back to this, the Blackburn Rovers, who were... You know, no more than a mid-table second division team who had a history of winning things in the Victorian times were taken over by a local businessman called Jack Walker, who, you know, by all accounts, seemed to be like a fairly benevolent business um, owner and millionaire. He pumped 
millions into it. So he, as a second division club, they managed to attract Kenny Dalgleish out of retirement, who was the most decorated manager in British football at the time. I mean, this is before Alex Ferguson started winning things at Manchester United. So Dalgleish got them up. They came up to the Premier League, or they came up to the top division when the Premier League formed in 1992, and they broke the British transfer record by signing Alan Shearer for, for 3.3 million. So kind of put that into context. We mentioned Luton earlier. Imagine Luton going in and breaking the British transfer record now. Wow. And all the things that Blackburn were doing, they signed Tim Flowers for a lot of money. They, they signed other players for a lot of money. It was seen as almost quite vulgar what they were doing to the same extent that what Chelsea were doing under Abramovich, um, what I suspect Manchester United will do if this money comes into them, was quite vulgar. They were the first club to play in this country to pay £5 million for a player. And they you almost felt they were guaranteeing themselves winning the title because they had Chris Sutton for £5 million, they had Alan Shearer playing alongside him. Now, what happened at Blackburn wasn't sustainable um, partly because Manchester United as that legacy club actually had the infrastructure and they had the manager that um, they could compete with with transfers and with wages but they also had that infrastructure around them as well um, and then Wenger came in as the Arsenal manager and brought in several innovations himself and actually all that competitive advantage that Blackburn had disappeared quite quickly so what we're seeing at the moment is no different the, the way to catch up will be through being slightly more innovative it will be around having those different approaches and being smarter in the transfer market um, from a Premier League perspective I, I suspect this is a really good thing for them because Premier League's model is they want to be the most recognised sports brand around the world um, and I don't know where they are compared to the NFL at the moment, but they're outside of the football stratosphere. I think they've they've surpassed La Liga now, haven't they, in terms of spectacle? I think it's second, think it's second, second to NFL, I think. Yeah, so it's, mm-hmm. it's right up there. And really, the only way that the, the Premier League can sustain that is to make sure that it's a competitive league within there. Mm. Because if, if Man City keep winning the league, it won't be. Um, I think they need there to be two or three really strong teams. And it, it just becomes a bit of a constant arms race. So... We are going to be in the slipstream. Well, at best, we're going to be in the slipstream of these. I think we've just got to hope that we create a situation where we can we we can pounce if if any more than sort of two of them are, are out of a cycle. Yeah, but that's that's kind of slim pickings, isn't it? It's the best we can hope for is that two of those clubs slip up and we can get into fourth or you know maybe get to a you know cup final or something like that. That's that's slim and and this. Let's face it, most clubs would die to be in the position that we're in. Um yeah. and and I do think I think there's a difference from from what happened with Black Blackburn and Jack Walker. And I you know, kinda I kinda hear you and I you know, I remember kind of the view at the time and the you know, kind of some of the headlines and you know, you're right, it was kind of viewed as vulgar. But I think there is a difference with these state owned clubs and you know, we're seeing with um you know players going to the Saudi League and um you know, I mentioned earlier on about the links between um the Saudi government and and Chelsea or Chelsea's owners and stories out tonight that um uh, Koulibaly, Mendy, Zayek, Abangyang, Kanté and Lukaku could all be off to Saudi Arabia and Chelsea are a club at the moment with 40 odd first team players on their books they can they can register a maximum of 25 we know that Pochlight's working with a small squad they've got players on huge wages um and then you know, potentially this is a way, you know, get out of jail free card for them from, you know, from elsewhere. You know, similarly, you could see Newcastle, you know, maybe making the same, you know, kind of benefit from the same kind of things. And this feels like a loophole to, you know, could be used as a loophole for financial fair play. That's very, very difficult to see how you could close that because, you know, you're looking at leagues outside of 
um, outside of UEFA's control. Um, I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure how you judge kind of fair price for a for a transfer if you could do something like that. Um, and FIFA are even less um, effective than UEFA in trying to trying to deal with these kind of things. And I do think that kind of the levers that states have got at their controller, you know, you know, entirely different. Um, you know, league to to anything that kind of you know, admittedly a very wealthy but a local businessman done good, which is what you know what Premier League or football you know first division ownership was like in the in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think the net result is it makes Premier League football it just moves it further from what we fell in love with. Yeah, and, and then but then there's that argument where this is what football's always been about. Like every every different like iteration of football each decade or each mm. second decade is basically further away from what it used to be and, and the people that mm. are of our generation are now uh, lamenting yeah. what um you know the, the premier it, just before the premier league or the start of the premier league and how it is now the generation before us were, were saying what is this premier league bollocks you know so you, you just <laughs> and, say we're be- yeah. being boring old farts ram is that what you're saying <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no no not at all i think but like, when you look at it and you know it's fa- if you look at what what's happening with football it's fantastic for football if you're looking at it purely in terms of business shareholder value market growth you know if if you're romantics like like milo it's fucking shit mm. because <laughs> you know you've got <laughs> you've got like the fairy tale underdog scenario which will be even fewer and far between the money will continually be going into the wrong places and to the wrong people you know and that's probably why fifa and uefa won't do a thing about it because there, they're benefiting there is it. a bit of me that would quite like the football bubble to burst yeah yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd yeah. love that. I would, I would and, love that as well. And kind of every time it's looked like it's overstretched, it's overstretched. There's been something else that's come along and bailed them out. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 there is a bit of me that would like it to to burst and and for the league to be. Well, actually, it's not even a little bit of me. I'd love the league to be more competitive. I'd like it yeah. there to be a situation where at the beginning of the season, um, you didn't know who was going to win competitions. Yeah. You didn't know, and you know, and I, I think. I, you know, you talk about the Premier League and kind of competitiveness. I mean, we were the seventh highest, Spurs were the seventh highest spenders in Europe last season, last summer, well, last mm. season, sorry. But the problem for us is that one to six on the list were also Premier League clubs. <laughs> and the only club in the top 10 who weren't in the Premier League were Barcelona. I mean, it's it's insane, you know, yeah. where you've got, you've got situations in, was it January where Chelsea outspent the other, all the other big European leagues combined? <laughs> Yeah, well, they they bought the um, was it Fernandez for hundred and five mm. million, and they bought Mudrick and for Mudrick. Yeah. yeah, so that was that was over. That was the best part of two hundred million straight away. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're you're right, Ram. We hear or I've heard people for years saying who you know when I was growing up were fans of the Premier League or top division clubs and say I've got no interest in it anymore. It's because it's just about the money, and mm. you know you sort of scoff at them a little bit, but. I'm kind of getting around to that. I think all three of us have watched football lower down the down the pyramid. Mm-hmm. So Milo, yep. I know you got you go and watch your local non league. So I, you know, Ram, I know you sort of grew up watching Barnet occasionally. You would have been yeah, in either yeah. in the fourth division or in the or in, or in the conference. Uh, Stevenage are my local team. I've taken my son there maybe half a dozen times this year. They've just gone up to to League One. But yeah, I mean, you look at it's kind of League One, League Two. Okay, Wrexham and Notts County have been a bit of an outlier this year, but certainly those three divisions. And I'm, I'm sure you know, down further down in the in the pyramid, you've been watching Milo you, you don't know who's going to win the league at the end of that season do you there's no. there's a surprise team no. who will come out of nowhere 
to win it and you, you could take it down even further than that you could take it down to you know the sort of the pure amateur football of which you, you get players of quite high standards we've spoken about some of the kids that we've released at Spurs who some of them will probably find themselves playing at that tier in a few years time so the technical quality is you know is good um, and perhaps you're, you're getting a slightly more wholesome products and there, there'll be people out here you know listening to us at the moment who I think that will resonate with and equally there'll be there'll be others who'll so yeah, those old farts on sort that. I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I'm fully invested in the Premier League train. I think that the the thing is, like, if if the football bubble was to burst, I would love it because it would mean we'd be we'd be the one of the teams that would probably be all right out of that. You know, <laughs> like where you know, in terms of how we're run and things like that. Are, you know, and then you 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 do have the legacy teams as well. You know, and I think and I think that's the difference as well. Can you when you look back at the '90s, for example, just as an example, when Blackburn came through or Leeds United. You know, Leeds United are, are, are historically big team mm. but you know when they sort of came up and started spending loads no, they, of money they spent most of the 80s um, in the second division though so you, you know your, yeah, your yeah, example true, is, a, yeah. is a really valid one yeah and you know and they came up and and but the legacy teams and i consider us uh you know a kind of lower yeah. level legacy team as well you know but we are one of the yeah. original everton, top villa, six or whatever yeah. everton villa yeah uh, but we kind of came back you know and that's the thing and like we, even when uh there, there's only so many times a team can like like chelsea came in but other teams came back than city and newcastle mm. but it feels now that what these you know more of these teams that are, a bit, are becoming sort of the, uh, these new money clubs are now there's there's now they're drifting further and further away yeah and i think that's probably the thing isn't it is that if you want to break in to that is the only way you can do it be bought mm. by a, a state or you know kind of equivalent wealth um i'm sure you know elon musk or someone like that probably you know could pump in equivalent levels of money but you, you know that you wouldn't feel any better would you about being owned by him <laughs> right. um, and yeah i think whereas i think there was a, a case in the past where if you did everything well that was enough and you know you talked about mm-hmm. wenger's arsenal team they they weren't spending they i mean they 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 spent a lot of money, but they weren't they weren't buying it, were they? They were just doing things differently that other clubs hadn't mm. done, and it gave them, as you said, the competitive advantage. I think if Wenger came in now, I don't know what's the equivalent to Serbi. Is that is that the equivalent of Wenger now coming in and you know have Brighton hit their ceiling? Is that as good? It was mm. last season as good as they can do mm. by those yeah. methods. Well, I mean, I guess the parallel between Arsenal under Wenger in the late. 90s when he tapped into that French market which say mid 90s no one else knew about was that Brighton seems to have tapped into the South and Central American market mm. so a lot of their players mm. so um Casado uh, um who's the lad that scored the goal at the end of the season against Man City I can't remember the wing anyway they've signed a number of players from that market that no one else knows about now what you know is going to happen now is that Newcastle Chelsea Man City Man United will either buy their scouts or they will be sending their scouts into those markets so that competitive advantage lasts for a very limited Mm -hmm. amount of time when that um, that resource can effectively be purchased or bought or replicated or upscaled elsewhere yeah Yeah. McAllister's has already gone to Liverpool yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. McCall- so McCallis is another good example. I can't remember what was the name of that winger in, in Cisco. Yeah, I know in Cisco. Yes. So Daniel Levy seems to be putting a lot of faith in the new financial fair play rules and that kind of levelling things up. I think they came into force last June, but there being um, there's a phased implementation to allow clubs to uh, to adapt. And so the new rules, the bit that probably interests us is um, a cap that uh, wages. Uh, can't um, well wages and fees can't exceed seventy uh, percent of of turnover, um, 
which would, would suit us really well. Is this realistic? And you know, and when we're talking about the Saudi league and you know Saudi government owning clubs, is that is that loophole already there? Um, <laughs> the, I like the concepts of it that suddenly this financial fair play is going to work out in our favour. My my challenge for that is what Man City are, are facing charges of what 115 odds. In, um, indiscretions at the moment that the reality of it is we know that at the end of the day they'll have a more expensive lawyer than um, Cass will or UEFA will and they'll get off it or it'll be such a such a sort of mu- it's the Premier League this time they they got off it with UEFA on a technicality didn't they they found yeah. guilty and then um, because UEFA pr- uh, filed the charges I think a day late mm. Man City got off them and interestingly Season just gone would have been the second season of their two season ban, European ban that they was part of their punishment. So wow. uh, they've won yeah. the Champions Champions League in a in a season when they shouldn't have been competing in it. I feel like I feel like since FFP has been introduced, we've been hearing I've been hearing this every season that oh this 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 time we'll, we'll get I'll get you this next time gadget you know and it's <laughs> like um, and, and so far all it see it seems to be doing is protecting the already elite clubs and then telling the new money clubs that they're very naughty boys. You know, whilst at the same time slamming the door shut on clubs that kind of would need to overcome the last few hurdles to truly compete. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't have faith anymore that, you know, I think there'll always be loopholes. There'll always be something. And as long as, you know, allegedly, mem- you know, uh, FIFA and UEFA are, are receiving some of the spoils, uh, then I don't see why they would, you know, they'd, they'd go fully hard in. I mean, I think- in maybe the way they have with City, but. I don't know. I, mean, I think that's 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 the concern, isn't it? Is that it's never really been enforced enforced effectively. These rules have been there before, um, yeah. but you, you've never really seen a punishment that's been an effective deterrent against other clubs doing it. Um, mm. And yeah, yeah, I do wonder whether we're kind of seeing a change here that's a bit like the formation of the Premier League or the Champions League, where mm. the clubs are in it. Um, you're going to move away, and it's, it's very, very difficult for everyone else to try and catch up. I, I kind of felt that with with us was that you know the point that you you're going back to the kind of early nineties earlier on, Gareth, that kind of point where Premier League was formed, the Champions League formed. We had Alan Sugar who was trying to run the club like Wimbledon, mm. and we missed the boat on that. And then kind of what happened subsequently to that was our, you know a very, very long period of us trying to catch up. And we did briefly, and then we've kind of fallen away again. And whether we're about to see a change here that kind of moves that away from us again, and it's very, very difficult to try and keep up with that that pack. Yeah, and so it's just the it's just the size of that pack now, and it's just the volume of it. Um, and I mean, history dictates that Bramwich took over in two thousand and three. Uh, Man City were taken over in two thousand and eight. Um, you know, Newcastle was. What, last, year, last year, Manchester United this year. I mean that that line that trajectory tells you that someone else is there's probably going to be a lot of money pumped into someone else next year. So whether that's in the next few years, that whether that could be Aston Villa, whether it could be one of those other challenger clubs around us, whether it's us or us, or yeah, yeah. or whether it's more money Liverpool. goes into Liverpool or Arsenal, then, yeah. then then what do you do then? But that is that's kind of the line. You suspect that's what will happen. It's just going to happen more often, not less often. 
And then is it a scenario where a little bit like the NFL, where, you know, most teams are, are so I don't, they're not necessarily owned by countries, but it becomes like, I won't say franchise. I still, I still think we'll stay, you know, teams will stay where they stay, but, but where it's like, everyone's quite happy to be owned by, you know, billionaires and, and multi, multi-millionaires and billionaires. And that's just how it is, you know, and then maybe the very, very top teams will always be competing. And every once in a while, there'll be like a little wild card that comes through and, and that kind of keeps everyone sweet. Yeah. I mean, it does kind of make me laugh a bit when you look at the kind of uproar there was about the European Super League. Super League. And I think we are seeing something here that's kind of, you know, equally as uncompetitive. And um, I mean, I know, you know, a lot of European clubs, the bigger European clubs are obviously, you know, very against this because they can't compete. And, you know, that was part, uh, you know, part, or at least part of their justification for the Super League was that the the money in the Premier League and the you know, Premier League owners was just completely pricing them out. And it's, and it's interesting out of those kind of big European clubs, you know, the only ones who really weren't interested in it were PSG, who you know got a similar ownership model. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to it's going to affect European football more widely. So at the moment, we know that all the money's in the Premier League. Um, I mean, Real Madrid, as they proved by signing Bellingham for hundred million this year, every two or three years they will find that sort of money to compete as well. But you'll end up in a point where Premier League clubs can't sell their players to other European leagues. So you mentioned that Saudi league, and that's potentially is a route to to sell your players. So Premier League clubs will have to sell to other Premier League clubs. I mean, that's something as a club we haven't done. We're not really prepared to sell our best players to our Premier League competitors. Perhaps to our detriment, it's always seen as a sign of weakness that you that you that you do it. But perhaps that's something that we've got to be able to do. I, th- I think we're already in that position. You know, Ndombele went to Napoli, and we're paying you know, half of his wages because. Hmm. He doesn't fit within their. I don't know. Sorry, even more. That's sorry. Three quarters of his wages because he doesn't fit within their wage structure. And okay, Napoli aren't the biggest club, but um, I think you're already at a situation that now where other than the very very top players, the ones that clubs are competing to sign, the salaries of kind of mid level Premier League clubs is beyond you know most yeah. most continental sides. Yeah. Well, well, I guess I mean the only real disruptor would be if suddenly a lot of money from around the world went into a different league. So mm-hmm. weren't weren't both the Milan teams taken over by Chinese, or wasn't there sort of a lot of Chinese money that went into both Milan teams? From what I, I mean, obviously Inter Milan seem to have had to sell all their best players, but you could imagine if you know four or five teams from Spain or from Italy or potentially from Germany were all taken over with clubs of that sort of wealth, that might just disrupt the system that much that it might turn the Premier League into a slightly more even keel, where the balance would be slightly different. I, th- I think the problem is, is that the profile of the Premier League would make that very difficult in terms of kind of TV rights around the world. It just it, it's very difficult to break into that. So it's not just about the ownership of the clubs, is it? It's also about the media rights and and the, and everything else. And I think the way that the way that the Premier League's organised itself and um, the way it sells its rights and the way the clubs act together makes it it's very difficult for anyone else. But presumably that, that's still cyclical. So in the same way that in the late 80s and early 90s, Italy seemed to have a monopoly on the best players around the world and had the biggest clubs in the world and the, and the most money in the world, albeit largely from local businessmen rather than sort of global states and, and billionaires. And Spain very much had the upper hand, La Liga, in sort of the early 2000s. The Premier League has been the you know the number one force for you know a good number of years. And as you said, it feels like they've got everything lined up that that's sustainable for them. But there will be a point, I mean, history tells us that that sort of, those sort of fortunes are cyclical. They do move on eventually. Yeah, every bubble bursts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we'll win the league. 
<laughs> Cup. <laughs> Cup. <laughs> um, let's leave that there. I think that I, I found that really interesting. It's it's something that kind of I've been mulling over, and and then kind of events over the last few weeks have kind of brought it up again. And I've I've seen quite a few people talking about it online as well this last week. And it does feel like we're kind of you know we're just at that point of another big change in in the Premier League. It would be interesting to see where it goes. Um, before we go, I just wanted to mention that the Supporters Trust uh, have got their 2023 fan survey out live. It can be found on on the Trust website, uh, and also they've got links to it on all their kind of social media accounts. And it runs until the 22nd of June, which is kind of what later this week. Um, it's open to all fans, so you don't have to be a member of the Trust to complete it. And so I'd encourage you to spend 15 minutes doing it. I know, you know, again, a lot of people moan about the Trust, but they are our kind of our voice into the club, and um, you know, I think they've got. They got a good response last year. Yeah, um, I've so done it. I've done it as well. I've done it. Yeah, I can, I can vouch for that. Yeah, it would take you probably take you ten minutes. I probably don't read the questions as thoroughly as you, Milo, which is probably reflected in our respective GCSE and A level results. Have you done it yet, Ram? Oh, I'm I'm literally going onto the trust website now, and I'll do it. You know, it's a bit done. Yeah, <laughs> Father's Day. Yeah. <laughs> thanks guys that was fun cheers Milo cheers Milo cheers we'll be back next week and throughout the summer with a weekly dose of Spurs related chat as always thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week <laughs>